This was Grace Fellowship Church just right across the river in northern Kentucky. And their church is a certified biblical counselor training center. And we've had lots of people over the past uh, probably seven, eight, nine years go there and participate in what's called level one, just foundational, helping understand what biblical counseling is. And so that training is held over three weekends, a Friday night and then a Saturday. So the first one's in September, then a weekend in October, and then one in November. So we'll have some information out to you next week about those specific dates. But I just want to get you thinking about this now. Now, here's what we know after 10 years. When we tell people they should get trained to do biblical counseling, they're freaked out like, I'm not a counselor or, or I need some counseling myself. I can never counsel anyone else. Uh, all it is is what he said in the video. It's helping a real person with a real problem using the Bible. Let me give you another word for that, discipleship. And so it, it just gives you skills to help disciple people through some of the real issues there. So I cannot encourage you enough uh, to go to that counseling training weekends coming up in September. And again, we'll have some information to distribute, but we want to create some awareness uh, even today because we think it is so, so foundational uh, to what we do and how we disciple people. Archaeologists uh, once hired some Inca tribesmen to lead him uh, to an archaeological site deep in the mountains. And they've been moving for some time at a rapid pace. And finally, the tribesmen just stopped and sat down, and they refused to go any further. The archaeologists grew impatient. Uh, they had a lot of ground to cover. They were on the verge of some big you know, discoveries that he was excited about. But he was stuck without them moving forward. And so he pressured them. He shamed them. He tried to encourage them. No matter what he did, they would not get up, and they would not move forward. And so finally exasperated, he just sat down himself. And then, all of a sudden, uh, the tribesmen changed their attitudes and they looked around each other, and they grabbed up their stuff, and they started on uh, down the road back to the site, and he was perplexed, and he just said, hey, I've got to ask you something. No matter how much I try to motivate you, shame you, threaten you, whatever, you absolutely would not move until you got ready. He said, what changed? They said, oh, it's really simple. Uh, we had been moving so fast uh, that we had to stop and wait so that our souls could catch up with our bodies. Now, my guess is this, you may have never been on an archaeological dig, but you've had times where you thought, you know what, I've just got to hit the pause button and slow down because it feels like my body is running ahead of my soul. And so one of us have all felt that, but when it becomes the habitual pace of your life, it's no longer a funny thing we laugh about among each other, it is crushing, and the reason it's crushing is because it runs contrary to the life rhythm that God has designed for us where we're to build in periods and seasons of margin and, and intentional times of Sabbath rest. And God thought it was so important uh, that he actually modeled that for us even though God himself never gets tired. And so last week, um, I preached the first message in a kind of a two-week mini-series uh, last week called Summer Isn't Just a Season. And what we learned last week is that the pace of life in the summer, it's slower, hopefully there's more margin, is actually more in line with the pace that God has designed us to live at than compared to the fall schedule. Everything's ramping up, everything's crazy, and all the chaos is starting back again. And, and my guess is this, is that some of you, if not many of you, heard that message last week and, and heard that challenge to build margin in and to build Sabbath rest in and heard that, that, hey, the, the, the pace we live in the summer is more in line with God's design for human flourishing. And, and you heard that and you agreed with that. But when you left and the real life started back up, you thought, well, wouldn't that be nice? I mean, who, who among us would love to turn things down a little and slow things down, but it just doesn't even seem possible? And, and for me, and this may be true for you, 
for me, one of the most frustrating things spiritually is this, is that when I agree something is true, someone's clearly taught it on the authority of Scripture, I agree that it's true, but I cannot figure out how to practically uh, live out of that truth that, that I think the Bible's actually teaching. So, so the Bible teaches this, but I don't know how to take that and put it to the real life that I'm actually living. And that's where some of you may find yourself on this idea of margin and Sabbath rest and building a different pace of life. And so this morning, uh, what we're going to do is to, to look at how, how to resolve this tension where God says, hey, here's the pace. But, but if we're honest to slow down and to not be a hard charger, to not, not schedule out everything to the fullest margin, it almost feels like we're forfeiting being American. Uh, because the American dream says this, hey, uh, you can have uh, anything is possible with hard work. And hard work does make certain things possible. But I would argue that not everything that is possible is also profitable. And so just because it's possible to overwork and overachieve and overschedule and, and overextend, just because it's possible, the question is, is it profitable? Does it run contrary to what God has designed for human flourishing? So, so how do we resolve this tension where God says, here's the pace, but life and culture says, here's what it actually looks like. Well, this morning, I want to help us with that. And so we're going to look at this morning three Sabbath stealers in, in, in a topical uh, format this morning because here's the reality. Ultimately, a lack of Sabbath, a lack of margin, a lack of a sustainable pace, ultimately, it is a symptom and not a cause. It's the warning light on the dash letting us know that something is wrong underneath the hood. And so this morning, I'm going to look at three Sabbath stealers, if you will, and uh, we're going to start in Luke chapter 14. We're going to look at verses 25 down through verse 33. And so if you've got your phone, your Bible, your tablet, whatever you're using this morning, turn to Luke chapter 14. We'll kind of use that as the base for where we'll start, and then we'll look at some other passages this morning as we look at some common Sabbath stealers, all right? Luke chapter 14, let's pick up the text beginning in verse 25. Verse 25 says, now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now, if we just stop right there, like if we're in the crowd, we would look at Jesus and say, hey, clearly you don't know the secrets of church growth. You've got a huge crowd here gathered around, and you say something like, that's not secret sensitive, right? But this is what Jesus does over and over. Verse 26, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, intending to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost whether he has enough to finish it? Lest after he's laid the foundation is not able to finish it, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going to make war against another king, does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? Or else, while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks conditions of peace. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. 18 years ago when I started pastoring, I was 
25 years old and uh, a wonderful Christian lady in my church, and her name was Dorothy. And there are two uh, exchanges I had with Dorothy over the, over the years that I will never forget as long as I live and as long as I've been in ministry. They have stuck with me. Dorothy has since gone on to be with the Lord. But one of those exchanges was I went to go visit Dorothy in the hospital, and what, none of us knew what those were actually uh, her, some of her final days. And I remember walking into the hospital and visiting with her, and there on her nightstand was her Sunday school quarterly leader's guide. And she informed me, she said, I'm asking the doctors to let me out of here uh, because if they do, I'm going to be ready to teach Sunday. There's no need to schedule a sub for me this Sunday. So literally up until the last days of her life, pouring herself out for Jesus Christ. And the second exchange uh, that I remember, I'll never forget, um, was this. Dorothy had taught school for over 35 years before she'd retired. After that, she served on school board. She was very knowledgeable about education. And, and here's a conversation she shared with me about being a teacher. Here's what she said. She said, um, I love teaching school for over 35 years, but you could not pay me enough to start as a new teacher. And I said, well, Dorothy, like you love school. Why, why would you not want to do that? She said, here's why. She said, because when I first started teaching, there was no question that I was in charge in the classroom. But by the time I retired, there was no question that the children were in charge in the classroom. And we could trace that to lots of things, realities. We could talk about the self-esteem movement that swept through our country. We could talk about the increase of litigation in culture from parents on school boards and teachers. Some would argue it was the removal of a corporal punishment. Others would say it's simply the, the overflow of a culture of declining morals in America. We, we could, all those things. But I would contend that one of the contributing factors is a culture of child-centered homes where children and their desires and demands are what drives families. And when children are in charge in the home, as a general rule of thumb, they do not like to be told no in any other environment they participate in. One insightful writer said this, he said, one of the first things you notice in supposedly backwards, uh, backwards third world countries is how well children obey their parents. And when a family is driven by the desires and demands of a child to the point where they cannot say no to any request, anything, uh, what happens is uh, you can forget about having any margin or Sabbath rest because they will push it all the way up to the needle asking you to meet all their desires and all their demands. So Sabbath stealer number one is this, child-centered homes. And we're going to spend a little more time here for uh, two reasons. Uh, number one, the other two Sabbath stealers we're, we're going to look at this morning. Uh, I've taught on them. We've not made application to how they affect Sabbath, but I've taught on them as a general rule. And then also, uh, I think this first one um, is simply this. It is often overlooked and it is often subtle because we're, we're often motivated by the desire uh, to be good parents, we love our kids, and, and we want to make sure they have opportunities and all those things. And so this one is often subtle. But I think often as we dig a little deeper, child-centered homes is actually a, a symptom as well. And the symptom or the underlying cause of that symptom is this. We begin to view family as an idol to worship instead of a gift to enjoy. Let me be clear this morning. Our families are gifts to enjoy. They are not idols to worship. Now, I've made a similar statement to that about marriage over the years. 
I've said often uh, that your spouse, as wonderful as they are, they're gifts to be enjoyed, not prescriptions to be consumed. I don't care what Jerry Maguire says, God did not give you your spouse to complete you. And if you think that is true, then what happens is you'll use your spouse as a functional savior, asking them to fill in every single void and deficiency. And here's the problem with that. No sinful person can perfectly meet all your needs, and you will crush them under the weight of your expectations if you try. Now, if you're sitting next to your spouse this morning, turn to them with all the love in your eyes you can muster up and say, you are a crummy savior. Would you just tell them that right now? Is it just me, or did we just celebrate Valentine's Day early at our church, right? <laughs> and, and we understand that, right? And I've watched that play out in marriages lots of times. But here's the reality. We should not make an idol out of marriage. We should instead view it as a good gift to enjoy. And we understand. Nobody pushes back. But my guess is, in our current culture, when we take that same line of reasoning and apply it to parenting and children, we're not as ready to receive that as evidenced by the schedules that parents allow their children to drive that everyone agrees is not wise or sustainable. Uh, every so often, I, I love, I'll see out there a post where uh, someone reposts an article from, from like a sports physician or a, a Division I coach or, a, or some kind of professional scout. And what they talk about is the foolishness of the amount of uh, games and practices people are letting their 8, 9, 10, 11, 12-year-old play. And they say, hey, listen, at the end of the day, who makes it to the majors are people who have God-given talents, and so what they say is you're, you're ruining kids, you're driving them in the ground, you're keeping schedules that are unsustainable, and every so often you'll see a parent repost that and say, this is good advice. And what I want to comment and say, so which, uh, which team did you quit? Right? Uh, we're having 12-year-olds having Tommy John surgery uh, on their elbows because of overuse. And so, uh, but then later that same parent will post a picture of their 7-year-old with their personal trainer. You know what she'd be doing when you're seven years old? Eating boogers. Write that down, all right? Like in your downtime, that's what you should be doing when you're seven. If you're 27, that's bad. But when you're seven, that's what you should be doing. I've watched for years as parents say, man, we just can't afford to send our kid on the mission trip or to church camp. And then I've watched those same parents go into debt for middle school travel ball. I've watched it over and over, and then, and then behave as if they're powerless to change anything about the reality that they don't enjoy and they don't agree as wise, but they don't know what to do about that. Now, what's behind that is a child-centered home. And often what's behind that is family has become an idol instead of a, a gift to enjoy. Now, remember this. Uh, we talk about idols. Idols often are good things that become God things. They're gifts God's given us to enjoy that become supreme in our devotion, in our allegiance, in our commitment. And so idols are often good things like family that become God things. And the problem with that is, is simply this. That's what happens in parenting. And listen, what's wrong with the world is not, not that we, we love our kids too much. What's wrong is this. We have a culture where family has become idle, and however my family is perceived, that is a reflection of me. And so instead of my identity being rooted in Christ, my identity is now in how well my kids perform. That's why in our culture, parenting has turned into a competitive sport. And the reality is simply this. If you're listening, say Amen. 
If you attach your identity to the performance of other people, there's only two outcomes that are possible. Number one, you will crush them under the weight of your expectations. Or number two, they will break your heart because sinful people cannot perfectly perform. That's the only outcomes of that. That's how that turns out. You have to wonder. And so here in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is not telling them to not be devoted to their families. What he's doing is he's challenging them, saying, hey, listen, at the end of the day, I have to be your ultimate source of devotion, that even to the point, if it comes to choosing your family or choosing me, I would encourage you to choose me. And if you're unwilling to do that, you cannot be my disciple. Now, some people say, well, I don't know that we should take this passage uh, literally. I don't know if it's that. that's it. Look, look, look at verse 20. Let the text speak for itself. What does verse 26 say? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. Not what's going to be hard. He's going to have to. No, what's he say? He cannot be my disciple. Someone's like, man, that's strong words. Maybe Jesus was hangry, right? Look at verse 33. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. And so like we like like what is is Jesus telling us to hate our family? Like what exactly is going on here? Now, here's what I want you to understand. Uh, the best interpreter of Scripture is Scripture. And so what that means is sometimes when you don't know the meaning where the meaning's not plain in a text, uh, the most helpful thing you can do interpretively is to compare that Scripture with other Scripture to determine the meaning because Scripture never contradicts itself. So the word hate in our English Bible is the Greek word maseo. And Scripture, we see this uh, three possible meanings in Scripture for the verb maseo. So one of them means uh, malicious or unjustified feelings about others. So is Jesus saying we should feel maliciously towards our family? This is what Jesus said in the Beatitudes, Luke chapter 6. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. So that, that's not the same context here. He's saying when people have malicious feelings because you're following me, he says that that's a good thing. The second time we see it used is it indicates righteous indignation towards something which is evil. And so is Jesus saying the institution of family that God created before the church, when you read the Bible, that family inherently is evil, and so therefore we should have righteous indignation towards the evil of family? Now Paul refers to this type of indignation in Romans 7. He said, For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, Jesus is obviously not commanding us to maliciously hate our fathers or mothers. The scriptures are very clear. In other places, we should honor our father and mother. Jesus is not telling us to hate our spouses. Then he turns back around later and says, hey, you should love your wife as Christ loved the church, right? So clearly those things don't fit the context. What Jesus is saying here in this passage is this is that our love and devotion for him is so great that by comparison, our love for our own families would look like hatred when compared to our love with Jesus Christ. And he's saying 
Ultimately, he said, you're so devoted to me that if it came down to a choice of choosing to submit or follow my family or choosing to submit and follow Jesus, I would choose Jesus. So in comparison, I don't hate my family, I love them, but in comparison, my love for him is so deep and so devoted that in comparison, it would almost this look like hatred. Now, in other parts of the world, uh, particularly Muslim countries when people come and receive Christ as Savior, they are in fact choosing between family and devotion to Jesus. But here in the U.S., it's often not the case and so more likely, it's not allowing our families themselves to become idols that hinder our complete devotion and submission to Jesus Christ. It means treating our families as gifts to enjoy, not God's to submit to. Now, let me just share some insight with you from this side of the pulpit. Uh, in nearly two decades of uh, pastoral ministry, I've, I've not had one person in two decades come to me and say uh, that my family and particularly my children are idols. Not once. But when they've talked about stress and anxiety and depression, I said, well, let's just talk about what does your life look like, the rhythm of life, and they begin to describe a family life, a family dynamic that is out of control, overscheduled, overstressed, overextended, all those things. And if I've, I've, I've suggested that, hey, maybe in fact you're treating family as It's not a gift to enjoy, but an idol. Maybe, in fact, your kids and their schedules and their demands, that becomes the drive. Maybe, in fact, this is an issue of idolatry. I've had lots of families get furious at me, lots of times. And what happens all the time, and the reason I know that is this. I've watched many times parents who neglect the good gift of marriage and who turn their kids into idols and pour all their time and energy into their children at the neglect of their marriage. And as soon as those kids get out of the house, mom and dad are divorced going separate ways. And oftentimes it's too late to fix a disease that's been festering for 18 years. And one of the surest signs we've taken a good thing like the gift of children and made it a God thing is a child-centered home. And every demand, every desire is indulged to the point where overscheduled, overstressed, overextended financially, and there's no room for margin in our lives. One writer said this, he said, not only is it an act of idolatry, it harms, listen to this, it harms the very children we think we are helping. They offered several ways it harms kids. I just want to share a few of them for the sake of time. They said, number one, it gives kids the false security that the world is about them. That when I build my life around the demands and desires of my kid in a child-centered home and then I turn them loose out into society, they find out very quickly that in fact, that in fact the whole world is not about them. Uh, talk to someone in between services. They said, uh, I work in the school and I, and I partner up with some kids and, and the parent, I met with the parent at the beginning of the year and the parent said, listen, I just need to tell you this. Um, my child does not like to be told No. And I said, what did you say? He said, I just told them, this isn't going to work then, right? Like, I'm not, it's not going to work. You ever, you ever encountered that kid who's never been told no? Like they're just going buck wild and the parents are like, oh, they're so funny. Aren't they? They're so cute. And you're sitting back there thinking, you know what? There's nothing cute or funny about demon possession, right? <laughs> and it tells kids, hey, the whole world's about you. The whole world's here to cater to your demand, your desire. No one should ever tell you no. You're hurting your kids for the real world. Secondly, it puts a strain on our marriages. A child-centered home puts a strain. When everything's about the kids, it puts a strain on marriages. Now, I'm going to say something that some of you are not going 
to like. And I, I don't want to be harsh or offensive for the sake of shock value. I just think it needs to be said as your pastor. Um, with your words and your actions, it needs to be clear to your children that your spouse is the primary relationship in your house and your relationship with your kids is secondary for the simple reason that spouses stay and kids move away. Hooray. Let me say that again. Spouses stay and kids move away. Hooray. Would you repeat that with me with great joy? Spouses stay, kids move away. Hooray, right? Listen, Genesis 2.24 Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. That leave and cleave command in Genesis 2.24 is given to spouses, not to parents. And so building everything around your kid in a child-centered home, not only does it have no margin, it will hurt your marriage. Now listen, if you can rattle off for me a family vacation after family vacation that was planned out in every single detail and you saved and you saved and you saved, but you don't have one story of going away overnight with your spouse, you need to evaluate that. Something is wrong with that. What does that communicate? Puts a strain on marriage. It reinforces selfishness. Let me tell you a secret, all right? Kids don't need to be taught to be selfish. Did you know that? What's a kid's first One of the first words they learn, mine, right? And if you build everything around them and their desire and demand, it squeeze out all the margin because they'll overschedule and overextend you. And they don't even care why, because they're selfish. Now, if you're sitting here thinking, you know, I don't think kids are selfish. Here's what I already know about you to be true. You don't have any kids, amen? You have a baby. They don't care what, they don't care you're trying to sleep. They don't care. Like, they, they just, here's the need I have. All of us are built in with selfish. We know that. Kids don't need to reinforce that. And then last, it puts a responsibility on pressure on children they weren't meant to carry. Kids weren't designed to carry the burden of getting their way all the time and all everything re-engineering around them and their demands and their desires. It hurts them. Now, I told you we're going to spend the most time here because it often happens so subtly. Because let's, let's, let's hear me this morning. Our motives aren't bad. Our motives aren't bad. We love our children. And Jesus is not instructing anything less than that here in Luke chapter 14. Uh, but So before we move on to the next Sabbath stealers, let me just share a few warning signs that, in fact, um, you might have a child center home, that you might, in fact, be guilty of viewing family as idol instead of gift. And the key word here is might. I read these this week. They were helpful to me. I think they might be helpful to you. So here's some warning signs that you might be treating family as idol and not as gift to enjoy. Warning sign number one, we seldom host others. Our home is seen primarily as a citadel set against the world and instead of a home centered on Christ that's marked by growing hospitality. We seldom sacrifice our time or money for anything that doesn't directly benefit our family. It's a warning sign. We seldom speak well of others and other families. If our family tends to have an arrogant air about it, you know, we have it all together and, and other people just don't understand the importance of, of family. And so to the point where we speak well of other families who don't have it together or the same view, view of family we have, family might be an idol instead of a gift. And lastly, we seldom have flexibility. People begin to feel like our family's routine cannot be interrupted under any single circumstances. 
And when family turns from gift to God, children and their desires and demands end up driving a pace of life that is not profitable because it is contrary to the rhythm that God has decreed is necessary for human flourishing. Now, I told you we'd hurry through the next two because we've taught on these before. Uh, But let me tell you, Sabbath stealer number two is fear of man. We taught on this before in a message titled, Addicted to Approval. Uh, John chapter 12 is a single most powerful example of the fear of man in all the Bible. Listen to John chapter 12, verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, many believed in him. Isn't that crazy? The people who were catalysts to his crucifixion, many of them were believers in him. Well, how in the world did it happen then? Here's why. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. Here it is. For they love the praise of men more than the praise of God. Listen, the leaders said, we, we, don't, we obey not getting the approval from men. And, and they're called, listen, you know how the Pharisees control things? Not by power or by, by physical fear or by war. How they control things is in their culture, the Pharisees spoke on behalf of God. And so if you didn't have the Pharisees' approval, in that culture what they're saying is, God doesn't approve you. And so they leveraged that to create a fear of man. And these people who believed in Jesus were contributors to his crucifixion. Why? Because at the end of the day, the Pharisees said, you need our approval. And they said, we are more afraid of not having your approval than we are being disapproved by God himself. Now, how is fear of man a Sabbath stealer? Here's why. Because when fear of man rules my life, I end up saying yes to people that I should say no, and therefore they steal all my margin. And I can't tell anyone no because I'm afraid I'm going to disappoint them. I'm afraid I'm not going to get their approval. And so every request, even when my body, even when my family says, say no, say no, say no. You ever like that when someone's on the phone and you know that someone's making a request and you're in the background like, say no, say no, say no. Tell them we're not here. Tell them we're dead. You're like, I'm on the phone with them. They know, right? And you know you should say no, that you don't have any margin. But the fear of man says, you're going to disappoint them. And that rules us. And so we say yes to our own detriment. Fear of man is a Sabbath stealer. Here is the third one I want to look at this morning. The third Sabbath stealer is ignoring biblical warnings about debt. Now, we've taught on debt multiple times, and so I won't spend a lot of time here, but how in the world is not obeying the Bible's warnings on debt, how is that a Sabbath stealer? It's real simple. Um, Finish this rhyme for me. I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. That's it. That when debt dominates my life, I end up constantly working to pay off the lifestyle that I'm uh, financing. And so debt is a Sabbath stealer. When my body says, uh, rest, when everyone around me is saying, you need to downshift and, and build in some margin into your life, I want to, I agree with that counsel. I don't want to, but Proverbs 22, 7 says this, uh, just like the rich rule over the poor, so the borrower is servant to the lender. And so because I'm a servant to the lender, I cannot stop working and rest because I have to pay off the life that I'm financing. Now, if you're listening, say amen. Parents, Your child needs you more than the lifestyle or education you are working to finance. Let me say that again. Your child needs you, your presence, more than they need the lifestyle or education you are working 
to finance. Now, even debt is often a symptom. So what are the causes of debt? Like nobody's sitting here going, I think debt's great. I love being in debt, right? So, so what drives debt? Even we, we agree it's unwise, but what drives it? Let me give you a few really quickly here. Number one, insecurity. Proverbs 13, 7 says this, one man pretends to be rich, yet has nothing. Another pretends to be poor, yet has great wealth. How, how does a person pretend to be rich? They finance through debt a life to impress other people. And if you're trying to create a scenario where other people are impressed by you, listen, the root issue is not debt. Debt's the symptom. The root issue is insecurity. Your identity's not in Christ. It's in your performance. Insecurity's a debt driver. Envy is a debt driver. Proverbs 14.30, a heart at peace gives life to the body, but envy rots the bones. You know what else envy does? Not only does it rot the bones, it breaks the bank. You've got it. I want it. I'm mad that you have it. I'm willing to go into debt to get it. That's envy. Listen, the Bible says this in James chapter 1, verse 17, that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. That was a memory verse last year. And so if I believe that every good gift people have to enjoy comes down from the Father of lights, and I'm mad at you for having something that I don't have, ultimately, I'm not mad at you. I'm mad at God. Insecurity drives debt. Envy drives debt. A lack of contentment drives debt. Now, envy wants what others have. A lack of contentment is I don't want what you have. I just want more of what I have. I don't, I don't want to take yours. I just want more of mine. Ecclesiastes 6, 9 says, it's better to be satisfied with what you have than to always be wanting something else. And if you don't get a hold of this issue of a lack of contentment, let me tell you how that practically plays out. The first phase is your yearnings start to exceed your earnings. The second phase is you get overextended financially. The third phase, you work more than you know it's wise. And the fourth phase, your home life starts to deteriorate because you're tired, everyone's tired, you're exhausted, everyone's at each other's throats. Why? Because you have no margin for Sabbath rest. Why? Because you owe, you owe, so off to work you go. Debt's a Sabbath stealer. Child-centered homes is a Sabbath stealer. You know the answer to all these things? Here's the answer to all of it. It's to find our deepest joy and our deepest satisfaction in Jesus. You're like, oh, of course, you're, of course that's the answer, right? Like someone asked a question in Sunday school, you have no idea what the answer, I don't know, but it's probably Jesus, right? Like, of course that's the answer. No, listen, there, there's a phenomenon in our culture, it's called FOMO. Raise your hand if you know what FOMO is. Some of you are like, I think that's short for bad word. It's not. I just want to acknowledge it, all right? FOMO is fear of missing out. Listen, when I'm deeply convinced that the greatest satisfaction of my heart is found resting in Jesus, I'm not afraid of missing out on anything else that promises me joy and peace and satisfaction because I believe it's found in him. So if I'm resting in him, I'm not afraid of missing out on anything else that may be Satisfy my heart. That's the answer. Resting in Jesus, being convinced that nothing else could ever satisfy me more. So so when I'm resting in Jesus as my greatest sense of joy, guess what? I'm not afraid of missing out on anything else that's promising me to do what only he can do. So this morning as your pastor, if I could wave a, a, a magic wand over you and I could get God to grant any wish that I wished for you, 
um, it, it would be this. That you would be so convinced and so convicted about the truths we've taught about margin and pace and Sabbath over the last two weeks that you would actually sit down and reorder the pace of your life because you've been finally convinced that summer is in fact not just a season. That's what I would wish for you and for your family. Would you bow your heads this morning? With your head bowed this morning, I just want to ask you, honest before God, as we have taught on this the last two weeks, if you've come to the place where you said, you know what, I'm tired. I'm tired of being overscheduled. I'm tired of being overstressed. I'm tired of being overextended financially. I desperately want to build Sabbath into my life. I want to model that for my kids. I want to live a life of margin, believing that Jesus meets all my needs. I want to live free from the pressure of getting other people to perform as a sense of my identity. I want to find my greatest joy in resting in Jesus. If that's you and you're here this morning and you know that you need to have some hard conversations with your boss, with your kids, with the coach, with the trainer, with the tutor, with your extended family, And I can pray for you that God will give you wisdom and courage on when to have that and how to have that and what that looks like. If I can just pray for you in that direction, would you just lift up your hand and say, hey, pastor, that's me, pray for me. Amen. Anybody else? Amen. Amen. Anybody else? Honest before God. Father, I pray this week that you would give people who raised their hands and people who should have raised their hands. God, give them wisdom. Give them counter-cultural wisdom courage to have difficult conversations this week this afternoon at lunch or at dinner about what it would look like to live the way that God has designed with margin and rest believing God's our provider God's our source God's our place of contentment God help us to fight back against the myth that we can do it all with the reality that it's not all worth doing. God, help us to push back on the American dream that says you can have it all with the wisdom that says it's not all worth having and the price it takes to get it. So Lord, help us live this week counterculturally, not because we're wise or we're smart, but because we want to show other people, ultimately, God is wise. We want to show other people that our deepest joy is met in Jesus and resting in him is what gives life. And so Lord, help us to do that this week, as hard as it is, with fall starting up, with school starting up, with life ramping back up. God, help us to live counterculturally because we believe that God is a wise, faithful Father. Help us to live what we believe this week in a culture that pressures us to do the opposite. 
We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.